Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yordana Azband. Our daf of the day, Masach Shabbat, Sari Dalad, 94. Our daf fundamentally continues from the discussion we alluded to yesterday about Hachaino Seyat Atzmo, that, that a living creature carries itself. But that's kind of an underlying discussion of the whole daf, and we're going to be speaking in piecemeal about you know several other topics as we go through. Um, the first one I want to talk about is as follows. I'm just going to read straight from the Gemara, and we'll talk about it as as I read. Amar le Rav Azbar Ahava le Rava, v'hadetz nan ben b'tira b'tir basus. What happens? There's a whole discussion here. Of, it's very complicated, and it's simply alluded to that the text is very terse. Ben b'tira matir basus, which means that ben b'tira permitted with a sus with a horse. And that's all it says. Now, the question is, what, what was permitted as follows? If a Jew has a work animal, right, all the whole nature of Shabbat, look, we're back and really discussing Hilchot Shabbat. The whole nature of Shabbat is that you and your family and your servants and your animals and your utensils, your vessels, all your tools are supposed to rest on Shabbat. That's the mitzvah. So the discussion here is, what about if you have a work animal can you sell that animal? Can you rent that animal out to a non-Jew who does not have the strictures of Shabbat? And then if you lend the, the animal out to perform, meaning you're lending it out for their use on Shabbat, but now your animal is working on Shabbat, right? And, and it's a very tricky, delicate kind of situation because, you know, to say, certainly in our modern era, certainly in the current milieu, the idea that Jews and non-Jews are not on the same plane with regard to everything is a difficult concept in modernity. Um, and very specifically with regard to Shabbat, that, that is the halacha, right? The halacha is that Jews keep Shabbat and non-Jews, not only do non-Jews not keep Shabbat, but they are actually, according to halacha, not supposed to. Obviously, if they do on their own accord, you know, what what are we gonna do? Um, so here, Ben Batera Matir Basus. Ben Batera says that you can indeed sell a horse to a non-Jew, meaning with the understanding that that sus, the horse is going to be become a workhorse on Shabbat. And the the Gemara goes on here. Besides a bright, Vatani Ben Batera Matir Basus Mipnei Shuhu Osebu Melacha Shein Chayavin Alav Chatat. So the bright here explains where Ben Batera is coming from. Namely, the kind of work, the kind of labor that the horse does is that which is not, which even if a Jew were to do it on Shabbat, it would not be, it would not incur a chiyuv chatat, right? You wouldn't have to bring a korban. So that doesn't mean that what the horse would be doing would be permitted per se, but it doesn't go so far as to bring about a chatat. And that's the rationale. Ben Bater says you could sell your horse to the non-Jew to use it for labor on Shabbat. Rabbi Yochanan says that Ben Batera and Rabbi Natan, they said one thing. What is the thing that they said? They said the same thing, rather. Right? The idea is that both of them hold, they both maintain that an animal, the horse, with a rider on its back, is not considered, meaning riding a horse is not considered working the horse. It, you know, it's not the same thing as like, loading up a donkey with with um, packages or whatever, right? Construction materials. Riding itself is not, con- is not 
put is not making the animal a beast of burden, according to these two, according to Rabbi Okay, so what are they agreeing on? They're agreeing that there is a circumstance under which the general concern of selling or renting your animal that is supposed to be resting on Shabbat to a non-Jew who will use it on Shabbat and work it on Shabbat is actually considered acceptable. Because again, either what the, basically the, the idea is that the horse itself does not become a laborer on Shabbat, which is very technical and, and very specific, meaning can you lend your, your mule? And the, the implication is, no, you cannot. Or your ox, and the implication is not. Because, again, those animals are geared to doing labors that would be considered malacha on Shabbat. And then even though it's the non-Jew who's doing the labor, not you, but it's your animal. So then you're supposed to let your animal rest. And you're not letting your animal rest. And it's, again, it's a delicate topic, I feel, um, given given this issue of, you know, Jewish-non-Jewish relations. Um, on the other hand, I would say that this actually is an indication that there were Jewish-non-Jewish relations, right? Meaning that there is some kind of trans- the, the capacity for transactional lending, bartering, selling between neighbors who happen to be Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's written very matter-of-factly. It's, there's none of this like, you know, lest there be some bad blood between the Jews and the non-Jews, it just seems to be like the concern is make sure you're not doing malacha, that your animal is not doing malacha on Shabbos. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's one very interesting point of this Gemara is that this obviously was somewhat of the sort of a common scenario that people, there was like business or sort of the lending or borrowing, obviously for money, but who care, you know, like this type of business transaction between the Jew and the non-Jew. Um you know, look, I think it just shows, you know, that really, you know, when we talk about Shabbat, it's lo tasu komalacha ata ubincha ubitacha, you know, um, you know, uh, I'm forgetting the whole pasuk, ubemtacha, right? It really, yeah. Thank you. Right. So it's really saying like your animal cannot do work. Anything that's within your property, you know, that's part of your household is just not allowed to do any work for you. Um, whether it be a servant, whether it be a child, whether it be a spouse, they just can't do work for you. And to see sort of the extent to which that went, that, you know, even the fear of you lending it to a non-Jew who then could lend it to another non-Jew and then the animal could work is really, you know, it's really sort of forwardly thinking all the permutations under which this animal could come uh, to actually work. But I agree. But to your first point, I think that's very interesting. This obviously was somewhat of like a common scenario that this would happen. Enough so for it to be, you know, commented on in this way. Um, I wanted to move on to something else that was interesting here, which is in the middle of the discussion, uh, you know, referring back to our Mishnah that we were discussing that talked about that if you transfer a piece of a mate, a piece of a corpse that's the size of a olive, uh, you know, whether or not you can carry that on Shabbat. And now the Gemara uh, brings up a totally different discussion, but it, I just thought it was something I didn't know about Sarad, right? About, you know, this type of, uh, which we translate into English as being leprosy, but we know it was sort of some type of divine ailment uh, for something that somebody did. Um, and the Mishnah, this is actually a Mishnah that they quote that's from Nagaim, uh, Paragzaim Mishnah Dalit, chapter seven, uh, Mishnah four. Tanan Hatam. Okay, we learned there in, in this Mishnah. Hatolesh Shimane Tuma. 
So if somebody plucks out the signs of Tuma from a Saras affliction. So in other words, um, if you had Saras and you somehow did something, right? Like it had, um, so there was one type of Saras that was cut of Baharas, which was um, you were made tummy because it had two white hairs. So let's say you decide to pluck something out of it, right? And then therefore, technically it wouldn't be tummy anymore, right? And then it goes on, it says, or you sear off the, um, so this is you sear off the mechia. So again, this has to do with an other type of saraz um, that sort of had like you had a piece of skin um, that I guess also had like healthy skin within the afflicted area. And so you sort of take away the, you know, the affected area, the part that looks sick. Over um, below tasse, you actually have done a transgression of a lotase. And what is that lotase? Um, that in Devarim, Perak Chavdalid, uh, um, in Devarim it says that you actually have to watch carefully the tsaras. So what Rashi explains here is that what that means is, is that you can't in any way interfere with the Kohen who has to come to look at this, you know, skin lesion that you that a person has and say whether or not they're tummy or tachor, uh, the person with the skin ailment can't actually do anything to interfere for what the outcome is going to be. So that would be the low tasse. Um, itmar. So also saying about this, they go on to say, let's say you had two white hairs there and you plucked one. Chayev, he's chayev for this because you need to have a minimum of two white hairs. But let's say there were three white hairs and you took one of the three. Now there's an interesting machlokas here. Rav Nachman Amar Chayev. Rav Nachman says he's Chayev. Rav Shisha Samar Pator. But Rav Shisha says, no, he's Pator. So Rav Nachman would say, no, this Lotase of watching the Tsaraz carefully already kicks in. And even though you still have the two there and you could, you're still would be Tahor, sorry, you would still be Tame by the Kohen, uh, you, can, uh, you can't remove the run. Rav Shisha says you, you could. So first of all, I absolutely had never seen this before. Like I never learned this. This was just like one of those things where I'm like on the daf and I'm like, wow, I like never heard this concept before. Never saw this Mishnah before. Didn't know about this Lotase. So I guess that's why it struck me and why it was something that I wanted to share. Um, and I think just the concept of acknowledging that, you know, I guess there's something about human nature about that, right? Like you could totally see where somebody, you know, sees the skin affliction, does not want to, you know, sort of really deal with like, oh my God, am I going to be tummy? Am I going to have to leave the machana? You know, what am I going to have to do to sort of get rid of the tsaraz that I have? And like, they do a little something to tweak it. And it may not even be with like full intention, you know, purposefulness, but just, you know, even more like out of nervousness. I don't know, Anne, do you hear what I'm saying? Could you see like how a person could come to do this? And like, I do understand. Yeah, like yeah. it's real human nature. And then like, okay, it like it changed what the coin would would actually see. Um, so I just again, so I just thought this was like very interesting to me. Um, and then I just wanted to continue reading. You know, they explain the Gemara then explains Rav Nachman's re- understanding here, like his reasoning and Rav Sheshas. So Rav Nachman Amar Chayev. So Rav Nachman says that a person who plucks one white hair of three white hairs is still Chayev. Ahani Masa, because still the person's action could have consequence. Because let's say one of the other hairs accidentally gets removed, then the tumor would have departed. So in other words, by removing that one hair, you still could have consequence because let's say one of the other hairs, 
you know, gets removed totally in a natural way, right? It falls out, you rubbed against something, it fell out. But because you removed that initial one of the three, now that person would no longer be considered tummy. The, t- the tummyness departs. Rav Shesha Samar Pator, but Rav Shesha says they're Pator, right? Because at that time, when the one was removed, the tuma was still there. The tuma was still um, uh, was still present. And so I think this is also highlights a piece of like what's so interesting about Saras, right? That Saras, unlike some of the other types of like tuma and tara, right? Like a dead body is a dead body, you know? A zav sits on you know, we've been talking about this too much midrash, like a zav sits on something, it becomes that object becomes tame. But here what the challenges with saras is, there is like a subjectivity to it, right? It requires the coin to come and, you know, make basically the diagnosis or the call of it's tame or tahor. And in a certain way, a person who has the affliction could actually sort of like, you know, fiddle with that a little bit or like, Think, you know, really impact what the determination is going to be. So I don't know. It just made me think a little bit differently about the Tuma of Saras, you know, the subjectivity piece to it, um, the human nature piece to it, that a human could actually, you know, impact whether or not they would be considered Tame or Tahor by actually doing something to the lesion itself. So I just thought this was like a very interesting halakha, something I had not learned before. Um, and, you know, made me think well, as we keep going through the DAP and are learning about all different types of Tumantara, that to me, Saras is like a subjective type of Tuma or a Tuma that one could actually impact the outcome if it actually becomes Tame. Well, what I'm struck by here is, and I, I have to say I'm struck by it again, is the degree to which Tumantara is like the the what do you call it the flavor of the day from a Sachet Shabbat you know when just when we were still in Brachot and I was explaining to somebody our project our talking Talmud project and said but then we're gonna somebody who was also going through the daf said to me oh but then we're gonna get to Shabbos and there's all that Tumantara and I kind of smiled and nodded my head because if you I've learned the Mishnah of Shabbat before and and certain big chunks of the Gemara but but not like this and of course, the parts that I was learning were, you know, the Hilcho Jabat part. So I I had not encountered the degree to which we encounter Tumantara throughout this Masachet. And I find it fascinating. And I think that it speaks to, you know, the very nature of what daily life or weekly life was back in the day when Tumantara was, you know, really a very strong part of, you know, like Lahav deal. But I would say that we today... Um, what do we call it? Like hygiene is something we don't think about. It's just what we do. We live very hygienically, right? We shower, we wash our clothing, we launder our clothing. We don't wear dirty clothing. I mean, hardly ever, right? And and I would say that maybe Tumantara, like they, it was just part of what how they lived, right? But they had to pay attention to all these things that that are off our radar. And I think that, but it comes on our radar here in this discussion of Shabbos, meaning throughout this Masachet, because because there it was, you know, that was that was how they lived. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, the fact I mean, this is really in the context of a larger discussion with this Mishnah and relating to the halacha of the mace and the kazayas of the mace that you were carrying. Right. But so many what keeps coming back to in Shabbat is there's so many parallels to different halachot of Shabbat in the halachas of Tumantara, because this was such a large part 
But again, remember, in the times of the Mishnah and the Gemara, they were not doing these halachot anymore. There was no big time Mishnah. I know. But it was like still so relevant and they still wanted to learn it. Um, and again, I like, I'm right. so taken by that also. I mean, to me, it shows such a so love. So I'll just add that it the, shows a real love for the Torah other, in my mind. Like you wanted to know Torah I think Kula, so. and you also wanted to preserve, you know, again, they were so much closer, you know, uh, to the destruction of the Beit Amin. like they just wanted to preserve what that way of life was. And I think that also speaks to that, like, Tuma and Tower weren't bad, right? It's not like the Tame is bad and the Tahor is good. They were just like different states of being that I think people just sort of went in and out of at different parts of their life. Right. And the one, so the one other connection I would say, which really appears in Masachah Babakama, right, which is that both Shabbat and Tuma, tar, Tuma and Tara, have Avot Melachot. Now, when we get to Babakama, we'll talk about how they're really different. The Avot Melachot of Shabbat are really different from the Avot Melachot of Tuma and Tara. But there is something there about like these are these are areas that have categories, and from there we you know march on. You know, I I don't know. I, I it bears more thinking about, but I it is interesting to me that there is so much mention of different kinds of tumantara throughout this masachet. Right. Um, okay, we wanted to just very quickly do the mishnah at the end of the daf. It says as follows: Hanotel parnav. Sorry, it's parnav zobezo. Somebody who removes his fingernails one with another, meaning you're picking at your fingernails, right? You're not using a specific cle. This is not a manicure. Obashinav, um, or with your teeth. V'chein sa'aro, someone who's picking his hair. V'chein safamo, his mustache. V'chein zakano, his beard. V'chein hagodelet. Hagodelet is, what is this? This is when you're braiding yeah, your hair? Yeah, it's when you braid your hair. Okay, this is braiding hair. right? Eyeshadow. right? This is a blush, right? No, pokeset is pokeset is fixing your hair, like you separate your hair with a comb or with your hand. Okay, or some people say it's dough. It's like applying rouge. It has two different interpretations of what it is. Just to point that out to everybody. Sorry. Okay, sorry. I I only saw the the blush, yeah, yeah, yeah. the rouge. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Um, okay. Rebelezer Mechayev. So Rebelezer says that if you do any one of these things on Shabbat, you are I, obligated to bring, bring a uh, korban chatat. Bechachamim osrin mishum shvut. And Chazal, and this is the dominant opinion, and it is the psakalacha. Chachamim said no. All of these things are asur on Shabbat. They are asur. They are asurit mishum shvut. Shvut is the technical term that means asur midrabanan. They are derabanan uh, prohibitions, and there's a machloket. There's discussion later on about whether they are toladot of the avot or whether they're shvut. We'll get into that. I'm sure we we will have no choice but to get into that in any case later going on. But the idea here is that these are things that, in fact, we can link them back to avot melachot, and nonetheless, we say they're they're at such a far remove in terms of derived activities from the primary activity that they are not considered um, that would incur uh, an obligation to bring a korban khatat if you were to do it um, on Shabbat. Yeah, I think that's a good, you know, one question to just bring up about this Mishnah, which I didn't find a good answer to is, why is this Mishnah here? Like, it also seems totally misplaced. We're talking about Hotza, 
and now we sort of get into this, um, you know, uh, we get into this random uh, Mishnah all of a sudden. So, oh, I just, I that's funny. I just somehow in my brain linked it with the fingernails and Tumantara. Yeah, but the Tumantara is from the Gemara. It's not from, well, oh, because of the Tumat's mace. Okay. Yeah, the piece of a person. I mean, you know, not to be too graphic. Right. Oh, no. So, well, but well, the Mishnah is too graphic. That because the previous Mishnah had a machlokas. Um, uh, you know, um, had a machlokas between Rabbi Shimon and the Chachamim, and this one does also. I guess. Ah, that's even, that's a that's a tight connection then. Very nice. Yes, that's what I saw. But not, it's not explicit in the Mishnah itself. You will have to see that as you read the page. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> in other words, it's a, if you understand the, but I think that speaks to something about the organization. Let's just unpack that for a second. You know, I know that a lot of what the Gemara does is it will come and say, like the Amorayim will come to say, okay, who said this Mishnah It's consistent with this person or that person? But I think what we need to understand is, and this impacts the structure of the Mishnah itself, probably to the early memorizers of the Mishnah, right? They may have understood, like they would recite this Mishnah and be like, oh, this is the opinion of Rabbi Shimon. Oh, this is the opinion of the Chachamim. Already by the time of the Amorayim, that sort of needed to be restated again. So even though like Rabbi Shimon's name doesn't appear in this Mishnah, you only find out about this later on as it gets discussed. That makes so, sense. I just wanted to point that out. Okay. <laughs> okay. And with that, we conclude our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Join us on our Facebook page. Tell us what you think. Uh, thank you to Rabbanit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank <laughs> you.